0: From Podcast One. Coming up in this episode of Target USA, North Korea has launched another missile and the threat level has jumped exponentially. Many think it's just a matter of time before North Korea is an existential threat to the U.S.
1: As Kim Jong un said a few months ago, North Korea is determined to build on their nuclear and missile capabilities.
0: Joe Detrani, former director of the National Counter-Proliferation Center, says North Korea will keep working at it
1: until indeed they have an existential nuclear capability that could strike the whole of the United States.
0: There's a growing consensus that believes North Korea will eventually develop nuclear weapons. The next question is, will they use them?
2: Is it just going to be a matter of time or is there a high chance that one day we'll see a mushroom cloud over Seattle?
0: Daniel Davis, senior fellow at Defense Priorities, a think tank. He says North Korea's leader Kim Jong-un knows using nuclear weapons means it's all over.
2: He is absolutely terrified of us trying to regime change there. He wants to survive. He does not want to commit suicide. There's
0: also growing worry. Korea could make a mistake while building and testing its weapons. Those two experts help us unpack this situation right now on this edition of Target USA. The National Security Podcast. From WTOP in Washington, D.C., this is Target USA. This is Target USA. The National Security Podcast. I'm J.J. Green. As you probably know by now, North Korea launched another missile on November 29th. That missile was the Hwasong-15. It's believed to be the most advanced missile to date. A missile that can certainly reach all of the United States. And a missile that they hope someday to mate with nuclear weapons. On this program, we'll take a look at North Korea's tactics, what kind of tools they're working with, what their plans might be, what the deterrence might be, what the U.S. options might be, and of course, what the impact of all of this would be on the U.S. First, to put all of this into context, is Joe Detrani. He was the special envoy from the U.S. on North Korea and participated in the negotiations with North Korea. He joins us now in the studio to talk about this. Ambassador, now, you, you've you said several times during the course of our conversations about North Korea and its nuclear program and its missile delivery uh, and its missile program um, that it is indeed approaching uh, the point where it's an existential threat to the U.S. Is that definite? They've arrived at that point now?
1: J.J., technically, I think they need more time. You usually would want to test the reentry vehicle so it doesn't burn up when it comes back into the atmosphere. Having said that, yeah, I mean, if they don't want to be meticulous and they're not being scientific about it, I think they could make something Mm. to a delivery system that we just saw the Hwasong-15 with that reach. Uh, I would think they would be more technical and more scientific in their approach. Certainly they don't want anything uh, sort of... Untoward happening on their on their launch pad, mm-hmm. or on an on a, you know an area that was not targeted. And that's
0: my next question. Accidents and mistakes are of great concern too. Correct?
1: That's the big concern. Exactly right. It's not only the technical accidents; it's uh, it's accidents in regards to communications, misinterpretation of one's language, and one's intent, and occasionally misunderstanding what one's intent truly is. So yes, there's a lot to be said about misunderstanding and there's a lot to be said about being as scientific. Now again, we're talking about nuclear weapons and, I, and I'm and i confident North Korea has, has to believe they have to be meticulous when they're working with something like a nuclear weapon. It's one thing to launch an ICBM with a simulated warhead. It's another thing to mate it with the, with a nuclear weapon. So I would say they have to test to ensure the reentry vehicle does not burn up, and that they're accurate in their, uh, if you will, in their targeting.
0: The last launch, and it landed in the exclusive economic zone of Japan after flying very high in the air and traveling, I think, distance-wise, uh, across uh, the Sea of Japan, about five hundred, maybe six hundred miles. Um, but what the U.S. The Allies in the region, South Korea and Japan, all have weapons. Why wasn't that missile targeted?
1: I would think, J.J., uh, you know, North Korea has launched 20 missiles this year alone. 20 missiles. Yeah. And you just mentioned the ICBM. Before that, it was the intermediate-range ballistic missile, a number of uh, no-dongs. Uh, one would want to use one's missile defense capabilities, in this case, THAAD, the Aegis Systems, uh, very carefully to go after an imminent threat. So there has to be a decision based on the information available. Is this an imminent threat to our allies, to the United States? And if it is, yes.
0: So, in, in other words, they'd have to look at this real time after it was launched exactly. to determine whether or not this is something that could be an imminent threat or a problem once it lands or something lands from it. And make a decision on whether to take it out of the sky.
1: That is the key, imminent threat. If it's viewed as an imminent threat, my understanding, and I would think that's why we have those missile defense systems in place, is that they would use those missile defense systems to take, if you will, a missile of that type out. Mm -hmm. In this case, the determination was made this was not an imminent threat, Mm -hmm. and therefore they did not— Attempt. Now, Ambassador, you were
0: one of the people who sat at the table with the North Koreans for a number of years in a very distinguished capacity as one of the negotiators on the U.S. Uh, team that essentially negotiated North Korea away from its missile and nuclear program uh, back earlier in the 2000s. And you know perhaps more about this than almost anybody um, how to deal with the North Koreans. Uh, the U.S. has been struggling in the last year or two, uh, certainly within this year, to figure out what to do with North Korea. What's the best course of action right now?
1: It's such a difficult question to answer, JJ. One, it was when I was involved with it, it was Kim Jong il when we had the 2000, September 2005 joint statement. And that took a lot of time, but eventually we got an agreement, a joint statement. That committed North Korea to comprehensive, verifiable, irreversible dismantlement of all their nuclear programs in return for security assurances, a peace treaty, economic development assistance, and eventually the provision of light water reactors for civilian nuclear energy purposes. This, And we were moving forward on that. Now uh, the, the North Koreans moved away from that. In and just 2000- remind us why. They
0: were moved away from
1: it. They did. You know, we had an agreement that we would want to verify everything, right? Mm -hmm. So we would want monitors on the ground, and they agreed to the monitors going in. And we would want to verify, indeed, that they are if dismantling their nuclear weapons programs. When we asked that, they put it in writing that our monitors could leave the Yongbyon facility, which is the plutonium facility, and visit, which is normal— other facilities, if you will, they're not challenged inspections, but they're saying we'd like to see certain other areas because we, we just to confirm nothing is going on in those areas. They refused to sign that agreement. And in 2009, that really ended the mm-hmm. September 2005 joint state.
0: So here we are, 2017, and North Korea has a new leader and... Not so new now, but a different leader from back in the time when you were engaging. It was his father, Kim Jong-il. But Kim Jong-un is a very different guy. And I think you may have mentioned this to us maybe on this this very program in the past that you could make a deal with Kim Jong-il. But it's not clear that you can do that with Kim Jong-un, the son. And I'm wondering why you think that is.
1: You know, Kim Jong-un comes in there. He, he's a young man. He comes in. He replaces his father. He's 29 years old, 27 29. We don't have the exact date. And he's been in power now about six years. He comes in and he looks at what his father accomplished, which was quite a bit, quite a bit. And, uh, and he's saying, what is the legacy? Well, when you go back to Kim Jong-il, his father, and his grandfather, Kim Il-sung, they've always aspired to nuclear weapons capabilities. This is, this is the apex if they 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 saw this in china in the 1960s when china exploded its its nuclear weapon and 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 since then they've always had this aspirational objective of acquiring a nuclear weapons capability so i think kim jong un decided that he would pursue what his grandfather and his father wanted but never succeeded in accomplishing and and in that in that case he said i'm going to move forward with that and having Such a capability, I think he may have thought to himself, would give me a better place at the table when we talk about an agreement that provides North Korea with security assurances, when we talk about sanctions relief, and we talk about other issues that speak to the peninsula, not only North Korea, but the Korean peninsula. It would permit him to be in a better bargaining position. So I believe, and I think this is where he is right now, having this nuclear weapons capability indeed gets him to the table and puts him in a a much stronger position to negotiate a deal, whatever that deal may be. And that's where he is. And I think this is a young man who uh, had uh, greater ambitions than his father and grandfather.
0: Well, let's talk about the deal. I mean, what could a guy who would murder his own uncle, murder his own brother, uh, and oversee the killing of his trusted generals and trusted aides and assistants with anti-aircraft weapons just very brutal kind of activities, kinds of activities. Um, Also, an individual who has attacked the U.S. and other countries using cyber weapons, which, make no mistake about it, are very real weapons in this day and age that we live in. Uh, So what kind of a deal could a guy like that want?
1: I think your points are right on the mark. I think they're all excellent. The cyber technology, but also the chemical technology, as was seen with his half-brother, using v- VX nerve agent, biological capabilities. He's looking at, if you will, the whole menu of nu- of weapons to include nuclear weapons. What kind of a deal could a guy like that want? One, he's showing he's a pretty brutal actor. He's a very brutal yeah, actor. Without a doubt. He's <laughs> brutal. And he has goals and objectives. And no one's going to interfere with those goals and objectives. And if you're not on the same page with me, and if you're not loyal to me, I'm going to take you out. And he and you cited a number of people. He's taken out over 160 senior military and party officials, to include his, his uncle and his half-brother, as you noted. So this is a man who, who's brutal, who knows what he wants to accomplish, and will do anything to accomplish it. So what kind of a deal? Uh, I think it's going to be very difficult now, JJ. The, the, there's no question. In 2005, there were no nuclear weapons in North Korea. They never even tested a nuclear weapon. In 2017, the assessment is they could have between 20 and 60 nuclear weapons, now they have an intercontinental ballistic missile capability, et cetera. It's much more difficult. But, J.J., let me make note this. They need security assurances. They want an end to, this, to the Korean War. They need some assurances that regime change is not the goals and objectives of the United States and South Korea. This man wants to ensure as best he can that he has longevity in the position he has.
0: Yeah. Well, you know, I hate to even go down this road because you know really we don't even need to talk about this this piece of this situation and and that is that okay if you're trying to demonstrate that regime change shouldn't happen but you go out and you commit murder <laughs> and you go out and you commit all these atrocities and you're saying but I just I'm just doing this to make sure you don't take me out That just doesn't seem to register very well with many in the world, and you're one of those people very clearly. So the other part of this equation is, what is it that is really driving this man? Because if he wants to survive, and I hear that his survival is really the only thing that he's doing all this for— Uh, then it seems to me that he would take a different tact because killing people and just doing it in a seemingly indiscriminate way and threatening the entire world is not a good way to ensure that you live to see another day.
1: Uh, Those are all excellent points. You know, regime change from within is something else. So when he speaks about the joint military exercises we have with South Korea, and when he speaks about regime change, and decapitation of the leadership, he is seeing that driven from the outside, if you will, from the U.S. and the Republic of Korea. There's also an internal dynamic, regime change from within. So some of those people he may have taken out, the 160 plus, maybe his uncle wasn't fully on board, his half-brother could have been a potential successor. These people could have been threats to his survivability from within. And now he's looking from without. And from without is the United States, South Korea, and Japan. And I have nuclear weapons, he's saying, I think. He's saying to himself. And with that, they're not going to mess with me. Mm. They're not going to mess with me. So I'm taking care of the domestic scene by removing all those people who are threats and not loyal and didn't really understand what my vision is and weren't supportive of that. And the external uh, threats, I'll sort of um, uh, address that with a nuclear weapons capability to tell them You don't want to mess with me.
0: That's Joe Detrani, one of the most knowledgeable and respected people in the world when it comes to talking about North Korea, because he's sat at the negotiating table with North Koreans negotiating an end to their nuclear program back in the 2000s. Thank you again for talking with us. We will be hearing from him again soon. Ambassador, thank you for your time today.
1: Thank you, J.J. I mean, I know you know the area so well and you're so interested, and uh, thanks for what you do.
0: We're going to take a quick break. When we come back, Is North Korea going to launch a nuclear strike against the U.S.?
2: Is it just going to be a matter of time, or is there a high chance that one day we'll see a mushroom cloud over Seattle?
0: We'll get the answer to that question when we return on Target USA. The National Security Podcast. I'm J.J. Green, and this is Target USA. The National Security Podcast. We've been talking about North Korea's latest provocations and whether or not North Korea is really building a nuclear weapon and whether or not they're really going to use it. We're going to pivot now to Dan Davis. He's a senior fellow at Defense Priorities, and he's actually served in the U.S. Army in South Korea. He's a retired lieutenant colonel. uh, And, you know... As we pivot to you, he's on Skype with us, by the way. Give us your initial thoughts regarding North Korea's missile launch on November 28th. And it was uh, in the middle of the night, as opposed to when they usually launch them a little bit later in the day. Give us your views and thoughts on what took place.
2: Yeah, so the first point is that it was not unexpected. Uh, and this this idea that many were floating around, that this indicated the, the hiatus since 15 September, indicated that, you know, they were thinking about... Uh, making negotiated settlements or they were, you know, thinking about letting diplomacy have a work, I, I think were never founded because historically speaking, they uh, have always had a break uh, in their missile testing in the fourth quarter. So this was kind of in keeping with uh, historical norms. Uh, but why, also be- why, why may
0: I ask, um, would they normally take a break in the fourth quarter?
2: There, there are a number of reasons, uh, some of which uh, we, we understand, some we don't, but uh, some of the things like that's actually the, the uh, harvest season, and they use a lot of military labor uh, to go in to do that, so they're off their post. Um, then there's also uh, other people are doing military training. They do a lot of historic training during that time, and so they're, uh, again, not uh, available, but there also could be, in addition to those things, uh, the fact that they, after they do a launch of almost any kind, they have to spend some number of weeks or months analyzing the data and making whatever corrections they need to uh, to, their, to the next test because that was the point I was going to make out is that this is one test, but they still have several other that they're going to need to do. And so they have to have some period of weeks or months between each one so that they can make the corrections on the next one because their ultimate objective is to have a very reliable uh, production model within their whole missile fleet so that when they fire something, it's on target okay. and it's, and it's going to get there.
0: So what do you make of the results of the, the launch from uh, 1128? Because it's my understanding that it flew 500 kilometers further, it went higher, and it uh, took almost, it was in the air almost an hour. Um, this was supposedly um, longer, uh and, uh, well, supposedly it was a, a, a much bigger deal.
2: Yeah, the, it, it actually didn't travel as far as, as some of the others in terms of, of, you know, straight line distance. I think it was like 600 miles, uh, but it went substantially higher than anything else has gone before. And that is that is significant because that meant that it was able to go into the atmosphere and then survive reentry. Uh, and that's been one of the things that has been a problem with some of their previous launches that the, uh, the, the warhead. Even the dummy warhead didn't survive reentry, and, and why, this one appears to have.
0: And why is that important for this? What for what for what they're doing?
2: Oh, yeah, it's critical because uh, it, the rocket can fly, that's fine. But if it doesn't, if it can't keep the nuclear warhead intact so that it, it uh, detonates, you know, in the right location and at the right altitude, then it's nothing but a big paperweight and it'll literally just fall apart.
0: So this is key in terms of their own research and development. Uh, exactly. OK, because that's what the Secretary of Defense, Jim Mattis, said as he was speaking with the president, that this was uh, some pretty significant research and development for them.
2: Right. And it, and it does show that they have made substantial progress, because you may remember, uh, I think late summer, they actually had four straight failed missile launches. And so they were those were failures, but they also learned a lot from each one of those. And it appears that they're uh, getting much better at applying lessons learned.
0: This was an ICBM. Do you see any difference uh, in between between this and what they've launched before?
2: Uh, as I understand it, the, the 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 consensus among the experts is this is the third ICBM test flight that's been taken care of. And there's been a number of other short-range and intermediate-range missiles that have been fired as well. Uh, so each one of them has its own uh, specific. Uh, characteristics, but there are certain commonalities between them, so it seems like that they're really applying all the lessons learned to each iteration of the test.
0: I guess my, my question is, do you get the sense that this one, uh, as North Korea has claimed, could truly reach the entirety of the United States as they have claimed, which um, I don't know that they could have done before, or I don't know that they'd claimed that before?
2: Uh, I think that the, the only safe thing to do is, is assume that's the case. Uh, it it is uncertain, uh, because for example, we don't know what they had, what kind of warhead they had on top of there, what kind of payload. Um, and because it's still, it's a, a, an additional technological hurdle to get a nuclear warhead, a functional active one made it on top of those, uh, rockets. And it's unclear whether that part has been uh, taken care of. We just don't know. But I think in terms of our assumptions for consideration of, of, uh, Responses that we make, we have to assume that they can.
0: The U.S. has, in terms of responses, you mentioned, the U.S. has forces there in the region, and Japan obviously has some resources as well, some to counter um, these these launches, and so does South Korea. Um, you've served there in the in the region with the U.S. military. Why wouldn't or didn't the U.S. take any action?
2: Well, that. Uh is a big, big issue because it's it's can be viewed as an act of war because you know they're saying hey this is just our missile development we're not breaking any international laws uh, and so we have the right to do this and if you sh- knock that thing out uh, they could view it as an act of war and they could view that as an attack on their sovereignty and that could could uh, spur a response a military response on their behalf. And so it has. You have to be very, very careful. You have to be ready, basically, to in, uh, respond to any kind of a counterattack. If you if you take that one thing out, it's not as simple as just shooting it down because you also have to be ready for the consequences in the worst case scenario.
0: What then does the U.S. and its allies do? can what what can the U.S. and its allies do? Because uh, this is clearly a provocation from North Korea.
2: Well, so here's here's the way that, that I, I view this right now. We have to deal with this as it is, not as we wish it would be, but as we have it. And I think that the Trump administration is, is taking some unnecessarily provocative moves, but it's certainly not his fault. I mean, and, this and what has, are, in fact, been building since 1994.
0: And so what are those moves, those provocative moves?
2: When you routinely, you know, make all these comments about we're going to totally destroy you. Uh, you know we're going to deal with this and and uh, and other provocative words, and then you've you know for example moved in a third aircraft carrier into the area, which is very unusual, and you keep saying, you know if we need to we'll destroy, you know the little rocket man kind of thing. What you do is you you build into their mind this belief that there is no reason to negotiate because. They, they only want surrender, and they won't even talk about anything that we can get out of this. And it hardens their position and makes it almost impossible to reach a negotiated settlement. So that is a definite negative from our perspective.
0: You have served in the region. Tell us what you did while you were there.
2: Yeah, I, I was uh, a liaison officer with the Second Korean Army uh, around halfway down the, the peninsula in the in a city called Taegu. Um, and, and, and engaged in a number of... Uh, uh, military exercises, uh, up in the Seoul area. And then also uh, a couple of field exercises up in the area of the DMZ and the area between Seoul and the DMZ. So I've actually spent a fair amount of time on the ground up there. And, uh, there's, that's actually brings up an important point about the possible responses. So when we say we can, uh, like, uh, what's the, uh, Mark Thiessen Before you get there, before before you
0: get to the responses, let me just ask you this question. What time frame were you serving?
2: Uh, The mid-90s. Okay.
0: Now, um, the question I wanted to ask you, a follow-up question, how has the landscape changed since you were serving there in terms of population, in terms of the risk there?
2: Yeah. In terms of population, it's substantially uh, more populated than it was. The, uh, the urban sprawl has spread considerably. I think I saw the other day that it was like five or six million more people than there were when I was there. Um, and so that obviously makes you know, a target-rich environment. Uh, almost anything you throw south and fail uh, the DMZ up into Seoul area, you're, you're going to hit something. Mm-hmm. So that that makes the threat of any retaliation, you know, a lot stronger. Um, but there's you know, the other thing working in our favor is that the quality uh, and quantity of the South Korean army is substantially better than it was. They have really good tanks, uh, anti-aircraft vehicles. They have great aircraft um, and, and their own missile force is pretty substantial, too. So they have a very powerful military on their own right.
0: Do you believe at this point that North Korea is working on, has, or is close to developing an existential threat for the
2: U.S. Well, <clears throat> that's that. That requires a qualification. So right now, Russia and uh, China have that capability, and they do have the potential. To have an existential threat to us but we're able to have acceptable relations with both of those the same thing exists here i do believe to answer your question directly that they probably do have the ability to launch uh maybe already have short or intermediate range nuclear weapons and uh, they may now have the uh, ability you know, whether it's perfectly on target or not, to launch a long range into the United States. So they do have that ability. But the real question is, does that pose uh, a offensive threat, i.e., if we don't take action, is it just going to be a matter of time or, or is there a high chance that one day we'll see a mushroom cloud over Seattle? And I think the answer to that is unequivocally no, because what Kim Jong-un's interest is, is he is absolutely terrified of us trying to regime change there. He wants to survive. He does not want to commit suicide. And if he launches any weapons, any weapons of mass destruction, or probably any weapons at all, for that matter, south, then he has a very, actually a certainty that we're going to come back with a overwhelming, devastating military response, and he's not going to survive. So he would never do that on his own.
0: Then why not then just shoot down these rockets, these missiles, when he's testing them?
2: Well, like I said, because he could respond. He could he could view that as uh, an attack on their sovereignty, an attack on their armed forces, and he could say, okay, since I see you're going to do that, now then you're showing me that my only outlet here is to use my weapons while I have them. Because if you keep going and you actually launch a preemptive strike, I may lose the ability to effectively respond. So like for example, here's an option what he might do if they're thinking strategically. It's not like you know one thing happens and then it's a complete you know unleashed you know, nuclear war, or they fire everything. Probably, what they would do is they would start with something relatively limited, but but painful, and say, okay, this is what we've done because of what you just did. If you don't do anything further, then we're finished here. But if you continue your attacks, the next one's going into Seoul, or you know, now we're going to take out another hundred thousand people or so. Because he again, he wants to use his assets to survive. Not, he doesn't have any death wish for anyone else. He just wants to survive.
0: You were earlier about to go into possible responses, if you haven't already addressed those. Um, the question that I, I think is, is most important here is, what would it take for him to use a nuclear weapon? So what, what would cause
2: what, him to actually what, use them?
0: What would push his button, yes.
2: Yeah, if, and, and, and I think that's actually very clear. I've, uh, a friend of mine works for the uh, Japanese Ministry of Foreign Affairs that I met while he was posted here in Washington several years ago, and and he says that their intelligence shows them unequivocally that if, if Kim Jong-un sees one of several things, if he sees actually troops crossing the DMZ and moving towards Pyongyang, he said that will trigger a, a, a massive response. Um, and if we you know, have a military strike where we try to take out their launch sites. For example, that will also trigger a response. If we don't try to invade and if we don't launch, you know, a, as uh, Mark Tyson put in. Washington Post a few a couple of weeks ago, a Syria-style attempt to you know send a signal or to take out one of his ability to launch missiles, uh, that won't work uh, in North Korea like it did against uh, Bashar al-Assad in Syria, because he didn't have any ability to respond, really. But Kim Jong-un does. And so we can't push his buttons like that. Well, we can't attack him. It's as simple as that. We can't attack, make any kind of military attack, and think that it's not going to Uh, elicit a tremendous response.
0: Last question. Where do we stand then in this mess?
2: Well, here's what we got to do. I I fear just just from statements that are coming out of like, uh, uh, you know, Senator, uh, what was it yesterday? He made the comment uh, on CNN last night to Wolf Blitzer uh, that, you know, we might need to go to war for this. And uh, I think that's the wrong thing to do. And when I hear those kind of statements, when I see you know, uh, the president saying things like, you know, we will destroy them if we need to. We're going to handle this and, and all these things. It sounds like they're in the process of building up to a war, and that will absolutely work against our interests, and it must be avoided at all costs. So what we should be doing is saying, all right, let's lower the temperature here. Let's let's everybody take a step back from the brink. So how about this? Let's Let's say for the next three months we're going to talk about talks. Just talk about talks. And then we can talk about later on about what we're going to talk about, and, and maybe we even consider – just consider this freeze-for-freeze freeze that the Chinese are suggesting where they'll freeze their nuclear program and we'll freeze uh, any provocative military uh, training exercises you know, outside their, their borders. And then we'll just talk for a while because the point is we have to lower the temperature. Here's the bottom line. North Korea will not under the current circumstances give up their nuclear weapons because they view that as their only self ability to, to defend their own self and their and their future and the regime's survival. So, unless they come, we can come up with some kind of reason to make them believe that they have the opportunity to survive with giving up nuclear weapons, they're not going to. So, Let's lower the temperature and make them, you know, give them any reason at all to believe that they have a chance to survive without nuclear weapons. And then maybe in time, and it'd be years, maybe we can actually start talking about negotiating that away. But what we have to do, what has to be the objective right now, is we cannot launch and start a war where potentially millions of people could die. Uh, I mean, it would be catastrophic.
0: Okay, Daniel Davis, Defense Priorities Senior Fellow. Thanks for your time and insight.
2: My pleasure. Thanks for having me.
0: That's it for this episode. One note, there's a constant barrage of insults flowing back and forth from U.S. President Trump and North Korea's leader Kim Jong-un. And I can tell you for sure, there are many in Washington and around the world, I suspect, that are very nervous about what that could lead to. In the meantime, that's going to do it for this episode. We'll be back to this topic, no doubt, very soon. Coming up in our next program, the U.S. has lots of enemies. A terrorist suspect, somebody who might be a spy. And a key tool the U.S. uses to track them down may disappear at the end of the year.
2: DNI Clapper in the last administration and DNI Coates in this administration have both called it the crown jewel uh, of intelligence tools. It's called
0: Section 702.
2: 702 is a section of the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act that allows the government to collect the communications of individual
1: foreigners located outside the United States who are of some foreign
0: intelligence value. A deep look at how important Section 702 is, coming straight from the Justice Department in our next episode. Thank you for listening and thank you for your support. Please subscribe to our podcast and also let me know what you think. Send me an email at, jgreen at WTOP.com. That's the letter J, the color green at whiskey tango oscar papa. J. Green at WTOP.com. I'm J.J. Green, and this is Target USA. The National Security Podcast.
3: The Serial Killer Podcast, hosted by me, Thomas Viberg thun is the podcast dedicated to serial killers. Who they were, what they did, and how. Join me as I sit down bi-weekly to bring you dear listener, into the dark land of serial murder and psychopathy. The show goes into graphic detail on the most infamous and lesser-known serial killers from around the world, with each episode covering one unique serial killer. So far, the show has covered serial killer superstars, such as BTK, Jeffrey Dahmer, and the Yorkshire Ripper. And, lesser-known killers such as Elias Abuelazan and Anatoly Onoprienko. Be advised, this show is not for children as it takes you deep into the twisted world of ultimate evil. You can find me exclusively at podcastone.com or on the new Podcast One app. Also, don't forget to rate and review on Apple
0: Podcasts. Now, stay tuned for the latest headlines from the Associated Press.